uh, for the, you know, we're going to, we've been working our way verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Gospel of John. And for the next three Sundays, we're actually going to take a break from the Gospel of John. We're going to, next Sunday, we're, gonna, we're very excited to admit some new people into membership here at State Road. So we're going to take a morning and uh, kind of dwell upon the significance of that. Uh, And then after that, it's going to be the Sunday before the election, if you can believe it. And I just want to take a morning aside to kind of prepare our hearts as God's people before that event. I know there's a lot of uh, strong passions and emotions, maybe some anxiety surrounding the outcome of the election. And I really just think that we as God's people need to uh, go to God's word to sort of anchor our souls before that event. And then the Sunday after that, I'm very excited to be introducing in a Sunday morning worship service our counseling ministry. You know, for the past year, led by our fearless leader, Greg Moody, who heads up that ministry, really appreciate him and his vision. A group of dedicated people here at State Road have been coming out in the early morning hours and uh, just dedicating themselves to becoming equipped as lay counselors. And we want to take a morning out of our year and um, just talk about the heart behind that, our hopes for that, and to kind of introduce that ministry in a fuller way. We've kind of been giving you updates on that as we go along, but we want to kind of unveil that on a Sunday morning. So that'll be happening November 8th. But this morning, we're still in the Gospel of John. I say that because this Sunday and the Sunday after we come back, after those three Sundays, we're going to be in John chapter 10. And this morning, what I really want to do is just focus on one verse in John chapter 10. And then when we come back to John 10 on November 15th, I want to come back and take a look at the whole chapter and sort of the theme of God's sovereignty on display in John chapter 10. But most of the chapter is dedicated to language about God as the, Jesus as the good shepherd, in fact, in uh, our verse for this morning, John 10, 11, he says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, I've got to be very clear about something. I am no sheep expert. In fact, I, everything I know about sheep, I have learned from growing up in the church and not from firsthand experience. I've never owned a sheep. I've never worked with sheep. I can't even be sure I've ever laid hands on a sheep physically. <laughs> I know I've, maybe I encountered one at a petting zoo or something when I was a kid, but I don't really remember if that's true. Uh, but I do know this. Sheep are mentioned more than any other animal in the Bible, over 500 times. And from church, even if you've never met a sheep in real life, there are some things that we as Christians growing up in the church know about sheep, right? They're dumb. We've all heard that. I don't know that firsthand, by the way. They might be brilliant creatures. (laughs) Uh, We've heard that they're dumb. I've heard that they smell bad. I've heard that they're pretty much helpless in the wild, that they get tangled easily, lost easily, that they easily fall prey to all kinds of bigger, badder animals. I've heard that without a shepherd, they're likely to get into trouble, maybe even die, wander off. They can't fend for themselves. I've heard all these things because I've heard so many sermons comparing me and you to sheep, right? And usually the point is you need God. You need a shepherd. You need a savior. Uh, And this is really the broad theme of the Bible. It's interesting to me 
that in the Bible, not only are sheep mentioned because they're an important commodity and source of livelihood in biblical times, which they were, it was a culture just steeped in sheep and shepherding. Sometimes I wonder what kind of analogies and illustrations Jesus would have used if instead of appearing to the Jewish people in first century Palestine, he had come to our people today, you know? Like in Matthew 25, where he's talking about separating the sheep from the goats. If Jesus had appeared to Aristic Countians, would he have said, you know, when the rocks and potatoes come up the harvester, I, the great potato farmer, will separate the rocks from the potatoes. You know, probably something like that. But it's hard to imagine something as ubiquitous in that culture in that day as sheep. Uh, basically, you made your living in that culture sheep farming or regular farming or fishing or you would have been very, part of a very small subset of specialized skills. But the vast majority of laborers in that culture were agrarian, and a lot of them worked in sheep. And even if they didn't work directly in sheep, they knew people who did. It was really, sheep were an important part of that society. So when Jesus starts talking about sheep and shepherding, he's using an analogy that was very accessible to them, but which frankly isn't to me. I, I don't know much about sheep. But I do know this, in the Bible, sheep and shepherding are very symbolic. Uh, for example, uh, in the Old Testament, unblemished sheep were sacrificed for the sins of the people, and this was a foreshadowing of the perfect sacrificial lamb, Jesus. That his sacrifice on the cross was the perfect, the ultimate example of that sacrificing of sheep in the Old Testament. And the Bible is chock full of passages like Psalm 23, where David, got, David compares God's people to a flock of sheep with God as their great shepherd. And so here we find just loads of passages that treat sheep and shepherding as an illustration of important spiritual realities. And our great king Jesus, because he is fully God and fully man at the same time, mysteriously without becoming less of either, is sometimes referred to in the Bible as a sheep. You remember back when we studied John chapter 1, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus there is compared to a sheep. But because he is also fully God... Well, he's the son of man who took our place as a sacrificial lamb, but he's also the son of God, a much higher being who reflects perfectly the shepherd's heart of the father and his sacrificial love toward us as sheep. So sometimes he's the lamb of God. Sometimes he's the shepherd. For example, in 1 Peter 1, 18 through 21, it says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed, from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He's a lamb. And then in our verse for this morning, John 10, 11, I'm the good shepherd, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So when, when the Bible talks about Jesus as the lamb, or talks about Jesus as the shepherd, in all those instances, what is highlighted and what the Bible wants you to see is that both as sheep and shepherd, Jesus' sacrifice is what was needed. He's the Lamb of God without spot or blemish. He needed to take your place. He's one of us who went to the cross for us. He's the Son of Man. But he's also the Son of God 
He is fully man, fully divine. He not only took our place as one of us, but he is the God who lays down his life for the sheep. He's sheep and shepherd, son of man, son of God. And this is a full total of what we see here. And this morning I want to address kind of a tricky question that flows out of this verse and really that lies at the heart of John 10. And I fear that unless we understand it, we will never really understand truly what love really is. And love is at the very heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Here at State Road, we have been called and set apart for the great commission purpose of making disciples of Jesus. It's been a while since we reviewed this, but what does that word disciple even mean? Well, it means that we are sincere from the heart imitators of Jesus' example. And the way we go about making disciples here at State Road, sincere from the heart imitators of our Lord, is by emphasizing those things which Jesus commanded in his teachings and modeled for us during the days of his earthly ministry. And we've summarized those three things in these three representative statements. We are a people who love God, we love others, and we love in action. And we didn't invent these three statements. They've been mined from a biblical ore. In fact, I think Jesus is the first one who really said them. In Matthew 22:37 through 40, in response to a question which had been posed to him, what's the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus himself said this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Love God. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love others. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And we add love and action to make explicit what's implied in the first two statements, which is that biblical love is never just words. It's never just a feeling. It always finds expression in what we do. The biblical love of Jesus found its ultimate expression in something that he did, the cross. And so for us, if we are to be lovers of God and lovers of others, we need to know that that can't just be something we feel. It must find ultimately expression in what we do with our lives with our actions. So there it is. All of God's revelation to mankind down through the ages can be summarized in these three representative statements, loving God, loving others, and love in action. And present in all three of those statements is that word love. And love is at the very center of John 10. It is Jesus's motive, his reason for laying down his life. In this chapter, Jesus identifies himself as the good shepherd who cares for his sheep and who sacrifices himself for them. Elsewhere in John 15, Jesus will say, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for his friends. So his laying down of his life for the sheep is the ultimate expression of what love is. This is the very motive. This is at the very heart of John chapter 10. And here's the question, the tricky question. It's very slippery. When we hear about Jesus laying down his life for the sheep, would we be right in interpreting Jesus' laying down of his life as a statement about the worth and value of man to God? That's the question. 
Just to bring this question into focus, imagine with me that you were a sheep farmer and your whole family worked on the farm. They weren't hired hands, but were personally invested in the fortunes of your family's sheep farming venture. Imagine with me if one of your children came up to you and said, and I was thinking about this this, this week, what if my, one of my kids came up to me, <laughs> to make it very real, Jack came up to me and said, Dad, I just want you to know, I love our sheep so much that if I saw a bear coming out of the woods to grab one of the little lambs, I'm going to sacrifice myself. I'm going to throw myself at the bear to save the sheep. What would I do as a dad? What would I do as an employer who's vaguely aware of OSHA safety workplace standards? I'm going to grab my son and say, don't you dare. You are worth more to me than all the sheep in the world. I would rather sheep go extinct than you die. And I'm afraid of your mother. So, so don't, you, don't you dare sacrifice yourself to save one of these stupid sheep. Isn't that true? So when Jesus makes this statement that he sacrifices him, he's the good shepherd, is that really what a good shepherd is? That sounds like an overzealous shepherd. That sounds like kind of a weirdly fanatical shepherd. What shepherd honestly is going to value his life less than a sheep's? Now, we'll come back to that thought in just a second. There are things we should die for, though, am I right? As Americans, on Memorial Day, we pay tribute rightly to those patriots who have made the ultimate sacrifice in defense of our country and freedoms. We celebrate that as, the, as a people. We also celebrate Christian martyrs who chose to die rather than renounce their faith in Jesus or be unfaithful to his commands. We think it right and good when a parent risks losing their life in defense of their children. And when soldiers die for their country, or martyrs, their convictions, or parents, their children, we typically frame that sacrifice in our minds and in the way we talk about it as a statement of the superior importance, worth, and value of the thing that they died for. In other words, in their willingness to die for those things, that is a concrete expression of a belief that those things are greater and more significant than they are. The great thing about soldiers who have paid the ultimate sacrifice, we look on their sacrifice and we say, they really believed in the founding principles, the freedoms of the United States. They thought that was something worth giving their all, and we celebrate it. So how then are we to understand this incredible statement from Jesus that he lays down his life for the sheep, us? And not he's willing to risk his life. I suppose on some level, every shepherd who's ever taken up the staff knows there's the possibility they might get struck by lightning while being out doing their job. They might die doing it. Is Jesus just willing to run the risk of dying? No, no. What he's describing here is a premeditated plan to lay down his life for the sheep. In fact, later on in this chapter, he's going to make it explicitly clear. He's going to say, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down. This is his plan. 
So would we be right in understanding this sacrifice, this statement, that he intends to lay down his life for the sheep, is that a statement of our worth to God? Was man so valuable that we were worthy of God sacrificing himself? Some might meditate on these verses and come away thinking to themselves, well, if Jesus' aim was to rescue man, then man was the ultimate goal of the cross. The cross would then become a symbol of our worth to God rather than God's great worth to man. Mankind, you and me, we have this horrible capacity to magnify and make much of our own significance while simultaneously making God smaller and less central in our thinking. We're capable, as perverse of this sounds, of making ourselves the center of the gospel story. Uh, John Piper, I was reading a a book he wrote this week, and he had this uh, to say that I thought was very timely in light of what we were studying. It says, The love of God is not God's making much of us, but God's saving us from self-centered sin so that we can enjoy making much of him forever. And our love to others is not our making much of them, but our helping them to find eternal satisfaction in making much of God. The only ultimate love is a love that aims at satisfying people in the glory of God. And any love that terminates on man is eventually destructive. I really liked that. It was helpful to me this week. And I really feel that that's why this is so important for us to have in our minds before we dive into John 10 in four weeks. I'm going to give you three weeks to mull on this. (laughs) It's an important thing to think about because unless we understand this about the loving sacrifice of Jesus, we will not know what love really is. We will not know how to truly live out that love And we will never truly become people who love God, love others, and love in action. Which is to say, we will never become sincere from the heart imitators of Jesus. The gospel is not about Jesus' need for us. Or even his desire for us. It is about wanting to give himself to us. The thing Jesus wanted to accomplish on the cross was he wanted you to be satisfied in him. It's a good thing he's giving. Jesus is God. I say this a lot, but it's always something so important to keep in our mind because we tend to view God through the broken lens of our own humanity. And so when we look at God, we must never look upon him as needy in any way. He is God, which is to say that he is perfectly content. He is satisfied completely. There is nothing he lacks. There's nothing we bring to him that he receives because he's deficient. And this is true when we talk about his joy, his contentedness. So when we talk about him, about what happens on the cross, that is not him wanting something, desiring something. That is him wanting to give you something. It's not not about our worth. It's about his superior worth being made visible. 
So the gospel is not about Jesus' need for us. It's about wanting to give himself to us. It was about wanting to satisfy us in him. His glory, his nature, his character, these were the things that were declared as surpassingly worthy of sacrifice on the cross. Romans 5, 6 through 11, I think makes this very clear. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. So there are some descriptive terms right there in that first verse. We're weak and we're ungodly. What a description of sheep. Feeble and wayward. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is a clear statement refuting the idea that the cross is a statement of our worth to God. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. And then in verse 11, get this. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. A proper understanding of the cross did not lead Paul to celebrate God valuing him. It led him to a place where he rejoiced in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He invited the Roman Christians to join with him in looking on their status as weak, wayward enemies. And they're brought from that place to recognize that God is somebody that they could rejoice in, to make much of. Look at his surpassing worth and excellence. This is where Paul ends up when he meditates on the cross. And we would turn that exactly upside down if we came to the cross and said, Jesus' willingness to sacrifice for us is a statement of our worth. Consider these verses also in Romans 15. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Do you see what happens there? The end result of the cross is that they might glorify God for his mercy. Or Ephesians 1, 4 through 6, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So that's the meditation on the sacrifice of Christ, his purchasing of you. And now the question is, is that a statement of our worth or a statement of Jesus' worth? And here's how Paul sums it up in Ephesians. He says, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So he doesn't go to that place. Or what about Psalm 82? I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. God is absolutely a God of love. He loves you, but he is also a God of justice. And the cross makes it plain to all that he is perfectly both without compromising either. He does not sweep sin under the rug. He punishes it in Jesus 
for those who believe and in hell for those who don't. And this is why I think it's so important to understand that Jesus' sacrifice for you is not an expression of your worth. This is really why it's so critical to grasp this, I believe. And by, and by not preaching that to the lost. Because brothers and sisters, let this truth settle down deep into your soul and give you rest. It was not your worth or goodness or excellence or wisdom that drew Jesus to you. You are a sheep. You are wayward, simple-minded, stubborn, smelly, which I mean reeking of sin. And you are so much lower than Jesus. Far, far more low than my son Jack from a sheep. And the absurdity of that kind of sacrifice, the absolute absurdity of it, should just boggle our minds with the fact that it's true. When we were in that state, wayward, simple-minded, stubborn, limited in our intellect, unable to see and perceive spiritual truth, reeking of sin, God said, that one is mine. Mine. And because that's true, you can rest. You can trust. If your standing before God is at all rooted in your worth, you've got a problem because you've got to maintain that worthiness. You can never rest. You can never trust. The God that you have come to believe in is a very superficial God indeed. He, <laughs> he just judges you by outward appearances, if that's true. And now you must maintain appearances. And so you will inevitably settle into this way of doing life and faith and Christianity with a hand-wringing uncertainty, never sure of where you stand with God, never sure if you will pass muster, because you've come to believe that Jesus' sacrifice for you is a statement of your worth, your goodness, your acceptability. You must come to understand what happened on the cross as a statement of Jesus' surpassing worth and excellence, and it has nothing to do with your goodness or acceptability or worthiness. This is how slippery our minds are. When I first pose the question, is this a statement about man's worth to God, I get to look out at all of you, you're only looking at me, but there were some heads that were nodding. <laughs> it sounds plausible. There's enough truth in it that we kind of half embrace it before we realize that that is the path down to a place that is not good. That is the entry point to a place that ends with a place where we have put ourselves at the center of the story, not Jesus, to our own detriment. There is a way of doing the Christian life that's not marked not by a restful trusting in Jesus, but by a busy, anxious, hand-wringing, uncertain pursuit of God's approval through your own striving. Good works in that kind of a Christianity become not an expression of our love for God, but rather our means of trying to demonstrate our worthiness of his sacrifice. We look at Jesus' sacrifice and we say, I'm going to live up 
to his expectation that I was worth it. And that betrays a complete misunderstanding of what happened. God does not love you if or as long as. He loves you. He chose you. And he chose you because of who he is, not who you are. And this is a wonderfully restful thing to see and believe because unlike us, God never changes. Who he is never moves. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's an immutable, unmovable rock of certainty on which you can build your hopes for eternity. However, if you believe deep down that the, at the base, the root, the reason why Jesus did what he did was a statement of our worth, your worthiness, then you can never rest. You can never trust. Because unlike Jesus, you are imperfect, inconsistent, always changing, hot and cold, unfaithful, and betrayed from within by a heart that is stained with sin and horribly prone to wander. However, if you believe deep down that your salvation rests on the perfect worthiness and excellence of Jesus, then you can rest. Jesus' words, it's finished, have meaning to you for the first time. He is a rock that never moves, never changes, and you can trust him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as I meditate on who you are and who we are, I have to just come back to this statement as impossibly wonderful that Jesus laid down his life for the sheep, for me, for my friends here in this room. God, I can't imagine that level of love. But God, I do know this, that in doing that, you were do, Jesus did that to share himself with me not because he needed me, but I needed him. It is not a statement of my worth, but of Jesus's. And Father, as I live out of that truth this week, as I share Jesus with others, as I attempt to become a disciple of Jesus, I pray, Lord, that you would help me not to look on what has happened in a man-centric way, which is ultimately destructive but in a way that would make much of you, that would celebrate you, that would exalt you in my mind and in the way that I live. God, thank you for this truth, and we thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.